Hey, this is Rob Harder with Making Your World Better, a nonprofit leadership show where real stories from real people who are coming up with real solutions to solve society's biggest challenges. What does it take to be an effective nonprofit leader today? How do people fundraise in an economy that is constantly in flux? How do you relate to board members in a way that inspires them to make a difference? What are the best practices that separate effective nonprofits from others? It is my hope that through these episodes, people can learn not only what it takes to be an effective nonprofit organization, but to hear real stories from real leaders who are successfully making a positive impact in their communities. We hope you enjoy this series as together we hear how they're making their world better. Nonprofit Leadership Podcast, Making Your World Better. Are you ready for the largest intergenerational transfer of wealth in history? As a nonprofit leader, will this be an opportunity that you can transform these dollars into true sustainable impact, or will you risk missing your full potential? Well, this is the topic my two guests, Stanford lecturers, are going to talk about on today's Nonprofit Leadership Podcast. So my guests today on the show are Bill Meehan and Kim Starkey-Yonker. Bill Meehan is the Lafayette Partners Lecturer in Strategic Management at the Stanford University Graduate School of Business and a Director Emeritus of McKinsey & Company. And then Kim Starkey-Yonker is President and CEO of King Philanthropies, a lecturer in management at the Stanford Graduate School of Business and former Executive Director of the Henry R. Kravis Prize in Nonprofit Leadership. Bill and Kim, it is great to have you on the show. Could you start by giving us some data to exactly explain how much money we're talking about and what is the context surrounding the transition of this wealth? We baby boomers, who I describe as beginning to see the white, great white light in the lessening distance, and this is going to be certainly within the U.S. the largest intergenerational transfer of wealth in our history, uh, perhaps as much as sixty trillion dollars. And the question. Uh, that we're framing is how much of that is going to go for philanthropy and how much is needed to go for philanthropy. Obviously, much of that $60 trillion is, is going to go to taxes. A lot's going to go to inheritances. And uh, the, the rest of it, of course, would go to philanthropy. Uh, we did a very uh, complex model to try to understand how much more philanthropy uh, is going to be needed uh, by the year 2025 uh, above a base case. So uh, most of us know that U.S. philanthropy uh, in recent years was about $400 billion. The revenues of the sector are about $2 trillion. Much of that is insurance and government payments to hospitals, but it's about $2 trillion as a sector. Uh, out of that $400 billion, we just did a, a base case growth rate, inflation and the such, and we predict that in 2025, we're going to need uh, between $100 billion and $300 billion more a year of philanthropy just to sustain the sector. And the reason is, uh, and we can go into more detail, is that most nonprofits have bumped up against the limits of building earned revenue, uh, and and it's just simple arithmetic to demonstrate that the rest of it's going to have to come from philanthropy. And so you 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 just look at what nonprofits need 
together with this large uh, transfer of wealth. Uh, and our book really is about ensuring that uh, nonprofits earn the right to receive the increased levels of philanthropy that they're going to need. Excellent. Kim, would you want to chime in on that as well? Well, I think um, what, you know, this, this notion of earning the right is uh, extremely important. So all these funds are coming in, and uh, we started this research so that we could help um, nonprofits to understand how they could drive more impact for their organizations. And um, therefore, so that they could earn the right to receive um, this additional funding. Excellent. And you know what? You've already mentioned a few things, both of you. But talk about some of the key findings of your research, and what surprised you the most as you went through this research. The book—it was written as a guidebook, uh, so that nonprofit leaders and nonprofit board members could help their organizations to have greater impact, and so that philanthropists could know what to look for. And you know, in many ways, this research started more than 12 years ago uh, when I first took the helm uh, overseeing the Kravis Prize in Nonprofit Leadership. I encountered um, Roy Prosterman, who's the founder of Landessa. He was our inaugural prize recipient. And his intervention uh, is focused on land reform, uh, which turns out to be a critical mechanism for alleviating extreme poverty. And uh, the organization, over many decades, um, has impacted more than 100 million families. That's more than 400 million people. And what was interesting um, when I looked at Landessa is that it actually, you know, it's easy to assume that that's, that kind of reach and impact are a result of large donations and just a large organization and a big budget. That's actually not the case. Uh, it turns out that, you know, much of Landessa's early impact was achieved on a shoestring budget. In their early years, they spent the first 20 years working um, out of a small one-bedroom apartment in downtown Seattle on an annual budget of less than $2 million. The headquarters was so small in this apartment that uh, they kept the files in half of them were kept in the bathtub, and the other half were kept on the stove. And so that that um, experience at looking at Landessa um, led me to start asking the questions. Well, if it's not size of organization or budget, what are the factors that drive impact? And so that led us um, to start the research for this book to identify what the factors are. We came up with seven critical components of strategic leadership. And then we did a survey trying to assess um, how well most organizations in the sector are um, displaying these, these or manifesting these um, seven levers. And what was interesting is that we found that 80% of organizations today struggle with at least one of the seven elements of leadership. Um, and we found that only 11% are actually excelling at all seven. Well, and I want to ask you more about those seven critical components. Uh, you've just briefly talked about it. Tell us a little bit more about the process of how you came up with these seven. How did you narrow it down to seven, for example? It really started... Uh, <clears throat> 
in the fact that we both came from uh, McKinsey, an earlier Stanford Business School, uh, and w we decided that uh, uh, w we were going to try to position ourselves uh, with humility, but really as uh, acolytes of Peter Drucker, who in all of his management writings essentially relied on his own experience. And uh, uh, Kim and I, given, what, 50 or 60 years between us, we came up with seven critical components, really, in the first instance. Uh, Kim was talking about the Kravis Prize, and she invited me after several years to a peer learning session uh, with uh, seven or eight of the Kravis Prize winners who led NGOs around the world. And what struck us was how common... Uh, their uh, essential components of success were, and how similar they were with what Kim and I learned. Uh, and so, for example, uh, our, our first critical component is, is a clear and focused mission. And each of these organizations, all in their own way, had had one of those. And just to review the rest of the components, uh, in addition to a clear and focused m mission, we see these high-impact nonprofits as also having a, a strategy that reflects uh, the best learnings from from uh, business strategy, uh, as well as embedded in a theory of change, which is is one of the concepts that's come out of uh, the study of philanthropy and nonprofits in the last few years. So, a clear and focused mission, uh, a strategy. Uh, based on a theory of change about how to achieve that mission, and then lastly, impact measures that provide some empirical evidence that the organization is actually achieving its mission. And so those, uh, 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 those are the three uh, uh, initial components of strategic leadership. And then we added insight and courage for two reasons. Number one, uh, in this book, we really try to provide a balance of analytical uh, components uh, of views of nonprofits as well as uh, the, the, the more human or poetic elements. And whether it's Roy Prosterman or Bill Drayton or Chris Bischoff or a whole range of social entrepreneurs as well as leaders of more mature nonprofits like Kathy Spahn of Helen Keller International, uh, all of these leaders have demonstrated and or de demonstrating not only a key insight into how to transform society, but having the lifelong courage to actually make it happen. Those we call, if you will, the, the engine of impact. And then we have three necessary elements of fuel uh, to drive the impact. And those simply put are fundraising, uh, a strong board, uh, and organization and talent. Well, we use the, the metaphor of the engine. Um, it's important not least because these seven components, we believe, are all critical components. And in the same way, um, if you have a jet engine, if there is one piece that's not working well, the entire performance is off. And so it's not enough for an organization to say, oh, well, we excel at six of the seven. We struggle a little bit with this thing over here. But 
um, the notion is really that you need all seven uh, in order to achieve high performance. Well, and one of the critical components you highlight in your book is having a clear and focused mission statement. And that was really interesting how you qualified this statement, and you'd already mentioned Peter Drucker before, and you shared a quote from him in your book, and Peter Drucker said this, for the ultimate test about a, regarding a mission statement is not the beauty of the mission statement, the ultimate test is right action. Talk about that a little bit. How do you interpret Drucker's statement, and how have you seen that played out in nonprofit organizations? Well, uh, Kim and I often say that uh, in our advising of nonprofits and in the book, we treat the leading viruses of the sector. And the leading virus of the sector is, in fact, that most nonprofits do not have a clear and focused mission whether uh, embodied in a mission statement or not. Uh, I've taught a class, Strategic Leadership of Nonprofits and Social Ventures, at Stanford Business School for almost 20 years. And every year we do a whole class on mission. And so we have examined oh, close to uh, a 1,000 mission statements of nonprofits over those years. And uh, in our class, fully 75% of, of these mission statements are found to be vague or broad or simply you can't figure out what the nonprofit does. Uh, and so in the first instance in our book, unlike I think any other observer of the nonprofit sector, we're actually insisting on a clear and focused mission. And frankly, and we'll get to Peter Drucker in a second, uh, it's not clear to us why they can't be put in words. Uh, maybe not a beautiful mission statement, but at least a clear and focused one. Now, Peter is obviously uh, drawing out what we would say is an important distinction, but one that frankly applies to very few nonprofits. He says the ultimate test is not the beauty of the mission statement, but right action. And of course, we agree. And let me cite a couple of exceptions that we would think are valid, but not for most nonprofits. The last thing we want is most nonprofits to have a sloppy statement. Uh, there's just not that much extra work putting it into words. So both, uh, both Kim and I teach at Stanford uh, Business School. The Stanford University, I think most would argue, certainly one of the finest uh, universities around the world, one of the finest nonprofits. And Stanford University's mission statement is, well, it actually doesn't have one. Uh, we were interviewing John Hennessy, the former president, uh, last week, and he said, well, it's probably something like excellence in research and teaching, but that's not written anywhere. There is a book of, uh, what, 50, 60 pages called The Founding Grant uh, from Jane Stanford, uh, the founder of Stanford University, uh, and that has lots of phrases that presidents and others use, but uh, Stanford operates very effectively without a mission statement. That's fascinating. Well, and as we move on to social entrepreneurship, you know, some people are calling social entrepreneurship the new business model. There was a recent article in Forbes magazine, and it mentions that today's young people are as concerned with making a positive impact on the world as they are with making money. Uh, they say as high as 94% of this generation wants to use their skills to benefit a cause. Um, you two talk about two types of revenue generation for nonprofits, donations on the one hand, then earned income. Explain a little bit more about what earned income looks like for nonprofits and how does that 
uh, dovetail or maybe not dovetail with social entrepreneurship? Well, let's just start out with a little bit of history of social entrepreneurship. I'm sitting here with Kim overlooking Columbia University on Morningside Heights in New York. And in 1974, when I was a, a, a senior at Columbia, uh, I bumped into a friend looking for a job. And two nights later, I was sitting in a Brazilian restaurant west of Fifth Avenue with Bill Drayton. That was 1974. And Bill's been a lifelong friend. Ten years or so later, in the early 80s, he founded Ashoka. And Bill and Ashoka are now widely credited with launching the movement we call social entrepreneurship. It's uh, the word has has now been been uh, uh, bent and maybe even torn to mean all sorts of things. Any entrepreneurship that uh, purports to have a social impact. Uh, and uh, as such, the, the, the phrase or the words are really come to, uh, to be applied to many different phenomena. Uh, you refer to here to uh, uh, an article by Mamie Fox, who I used to work with at McKinsey, who talks about the millennials, and they're, uh, in this article, 94% wanting to have their skills benefit a cause. And I can only tell you, you know, we baby boomers, uh, we were going to bring peace and love to the world. And in fact, what we did was settle for 2% and 20. It, it's not clear to me at all where the millennials will take this very non-specific desire to benefit a cause uh, from the perch of Stanford Business School. There's no question that in addition to this attribute often attributed to the millennials of entitlement. Uh, as a group, they do want to give back. Uh, and any business or investing firm that asserts that it uh, aspires to have social impact, no question, captures their interest. What is unknown now is whether the various phenomena under the term social business, social enterprise, impact investing, there's a wide range of them, whether or not these things are in fact going to be vehicles for impact. Uh, it, it's very unclear. We could go through each one of those. Uh, for right now, I'm sitting in a pair of Levi jeans. And I'm in the category which is often ridiculed by uh, the self-styled uh, uh, re revolutionary thinkers in the social sector. Uh, I have two pockets here. And by and large, despite all the uh, innovation, uh, I I'm a two-pocket guy. And one pocket is philanthropy and nonprofits. And the other pocket is is uh, cap, private capital and business. I do have a little coin pocket here that's very difficult to get quarters in and quarters out. Doesn't fit much money, and that's what I would call the social enterprise impact investing space. There's lots of experimentation. The private bankers and the investment managers are very excited to brand any new product as a social impact product. Uh, I think we remain uh, skeptical uh, and uh, in the uh, 
the two pocket class. Interesting. I, a question, kind of to follow up on that. Do you think, in light of that, should nonprofits change their fundraising strategy, um, or do you think they should stay the course and really still lean into uh, philanthropic, you know, donations and donors that typically want to give and invest their money into nonprofits, uh, kind of the traditional way, if you will? I think that they need to uh, continue on fundraising. Um, that doesn't mean that in certain cases earned revenue isn't a good idea. Uh, there are a number of exceptional nonprofits that have done very well with earned revenue. BRAC is one of them. I wrote a case study probably 10 years ago on BRAC and SSIR and their earned revenue strategy. It's very effective. But that's the exception, not the rule. And um, most organizations, even if they have a robust earned revenue um, strategy, also need philanthropy. And um, fundraising is one of the seven elements of um, strategic leadership in our book uh, because we think it's so important for every nonprofit. And we also think that most nonprofits uh, still are not excelling at fundraising. Uh, it's a struggle for most organizations. And one of the points that we make is uh, that organizations need to go where the money is. Uh, there was a famous bank robber named Willie Sutton, uh, and when he was asked, why do you rob banks, he said, well, because that's where the money is. And uh, we think that nonprofits um, should, in their fundraising strategy, should um, do a better job at going where the money is. Um, and to give you an example, um, most nonprofits spend a whole lot of time on arduous grant applications for foundations. Um, and it turns out that um, if you look at the pie of philanthropic giving, uh, the vast majority actually is coming from uh, living individuals, 71% of the total. Uh, only 15% of the total is from foundations. And so to the extent that, that organizations are, you know, breaking their necks on these long grant applications, we would argue that perhaps um, it would make sense for them to think um, a little bit more about their strategies with respect to individuals. And specifically, we also suggest that um, nonprofits um, learn from the experiences of um, what we call the partners in Pluto philanthropy. And that's basically um, museums, hospitals, arts organizations, um, those that are really excellent at um, raising major gifts, universities as well. Um, you know, they're the real pros at fundraising from individuals. And we argue that um, smaller nonprofits, social service, poverty alleviation, that n nonprofits like that can also um, learn to excel at raising major gifts from individuals. Very interesting. And, and you've already shared a few examples, but perhaps you could share an example of a nonprofit that when you think about your seven critical components of strategic leadership, is there a nonprofit that comes to your mind that really is successfully implementing these seven critical components? Uh, there's a couple for me. Uh, the last chapter in our book is about scaling, scaling an organization's impact. And uh, we argue that um, you need these seven elements in place in order to truly achieve impact at scale. And a couple of the organizations that we cite as best practice examples in that chapter, uh, one is Prothem, uh, which is an education, the largest education organization um, working in India. And it's achieved significant impact at scale. Um, it has 
over, you know, was on in the early years, was one of the first um, to do randomized control trials with JPAL, and they've done 12 uh, randomized evaluations over time, so their impact evaluation is excellent. And they've also managed to scale over time. Um, so, you know, I would cite Pratham. I would cite um, the Positive Coaching Alliance, um, which is also a terrific organization working in the United States. Um, and Last Mile Health as well is also featured uh, in our scaling chapter. That's excellent. And, you know, as you think about your research, what do you think is the long-term impact for social entrepreneurs on the one hand and nonprofit leaders if they're able to follow the principles outlined in your book? We divided all nonprofits into basically four plus one uh, categories about how well positioned they were to follow our components and scale and have high impact. Uh, and we took a survey that Kim led, the Stanford Survey of Nonprofit Leadership, where we had 3,000 responses from nonprofit leaders. And we used that data to fill out the matrix, uh, 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 which shows really how well nonprofits uh, are positioned. So, for example, what we called the promised land, which is to say nonprofits that had the first four elements of the engine in place and also uh, the three elements of the fuel, well, those are only 11% of nonprofits, which we judge to be both high impact and operating at scale. On the other side, uh, which are nonprofits that we just really don't think deserve to exist. This is a controversial thing to say in a sector that embraces uh, virtually everyone, but our uh, our estimate based on the survey is that about 37% of nonprofits in the U.S. we put in scale jail. Uh, typically, these are very small. Uh, typically, they may not have much impact, and it's really just best if 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 if, if they don't try and follow their seven elements and they don't try and scale at all. I won't go uh, into every detail of the matrix except to, to, to add two more. Uh, about 10% of nonprofits we judge to be small is beautiful. And all that means is they're doing a very good job and they shouldn't scale. Our classic example of this is in East Palo Alto. Uh, there's an independent school called Eastside Craft, started by Helen Kim and Chris Bischoff. It was started before charter schools, after uh, Ravenswood High, the only high school in that area, public high school in that area, was closed. And Eastside Prep is, has been a model for many, many, but Chris and Helen both long ago decided that this was going to be the one school they were going to do. It's small, it's beautiful, and we think they should be very satisfied with that. Uh, and lastly, about 15% we call the waterfall. We can't uh, describe it other than to say it's, it's like an M.C. Escher drawing, a perpetual motion machine. And we find, uh, uh, particularly around colleges and universities, but all around, sometimes people think, like, just because you say you're a social entrepreneur, you should be applauded and funded. And we do find uh, a, a few but very often uh, uh, very compelling, inspiring, articulate social entrepreneurs that when you listen to them, you can't figure out what it is they do and how they're going to have impact. Uh, 
and we would really discourage people from funding them and, in fact, discourage them from trying to follow our seven elements because uh, it turns out that social impact is hard work. Not every idea is insightful and impactful, and that donors and philanthropists play an important role of making sure that the organizations they fund, in fact, are uh, deserving of their support. Well, this has been excellent. Again, my guests today have been Bill Meehan and Kim Starkey-Yonker. They're co-authors of Engine of Impact, Essentials of Strategic Leadership in the Nonprofit Sector. Um, Bill and Kim, if people find or want to find out more about your book, more about the two of you, where would you send them? We have a book website, engineofimpact.org. And we have some very exciting tools and resources on this website. Uh, in addition to a number of articles that we've written, uh, we have some tools. That uh, first, there's a payout model, a payout tool for philanthropists uh, that can be very helpful as they think about the future. And secondly, we're especially excited about the Engine of Impact Diagnostic Tool. Um, so this is a set of questions. Uh, it takes about 10 minutes to complete, and it enables um, any representative of a nonprofit, whether you're a staff member or a leader or a board member, um, to answer these questions and assess your organization's performance in terms of strengths and weaknesses. Uh, and it gives you a printout of um, in which, cat, which of our seven elements you're excellent versus good, poor, fair, and whatnot. And this is especially useful, um, for example, if you are a board member of a nonprofit, because you can have um, different stakeholders of the organization and different um, members of the board take the diagnostic, and then everyone can print their results, and you can use it as the basis of a conversation, um, a conversation about, you know, what do we all agree uh, are the strengths and weaknesses of the organization, and then where are the areas where there's disagreement? Well, let's have a conversation about that because some of us think we're excellent at strategy, for example, but others are concerned about it. Uh, and so it can be the basis of a very fruitful conversation that hopefully um, can enable organizations to really hone in on where their strengths and um, challenges are and m make some plans for addressing those things that are they're struggling with. Excellent. Bill, would you like to add anything else? I would just like to say, because uh, a book like this can sound uh, evaluative and critical, I would just to return to the basics, which is uh, famously Alexis de Tocqueville in the 19th century came from France and observed uh, that we had this unique uh, societal characteristic of forming associations when there was an issue that society needed to address that uh, in other countries, particularly in Europe, government would respond to uh, or not at all. The sector of ours uh, called nonprofits in the U.S. Uh, is unique and distinctive in the world. Other countries uh, have one, but nothing of the scale and the impact that we do. And our most important message, probably in writing this book, is whether you're a social entrepreneur, a small donor, a large-scale philanthropist, an executive at a foundation, uh, or in a company, we really encourage you to uh, find an organization or two or three in the sector that matches your values, 
that uh, has the essentials of strategic leadership that we define in the book and to support it with your money and your time and your leadership. Well, Bill and Kim, thanks so much for taking time and thanks for calling in from New York. And I agree to my listeners, I encourage you to get the book Engine of Impact. It's just packed full of great research. And of course, Kim and Bill have so much experience between the two of them. Thanks again for talking about what this uh, book is all about and really why someone should dive into it and how it's going to help their nonprofit organization. I want to let you know that we are on iTunes. If you are wondering how to find out where we are, check us out on iTunes by typing Nonprofit Leadership Podcast or Rob Harder, and this podcast should show up. We also encourage you, when you go on iTunes, let us know what you think. Give us a review. Give us a rating. We would love to hear what you think of this podcast, and your feedback will help us expand this podcast to get it out to as many people as we can. You can also go online to listen to this podcast, either nonprofitleadershippodcast.org or my website, robharder.com. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, keep making your world better.